0: In the book of John this morning, chapter eleven, and before I read this, we are going through a series looking at mainly the I am statements of Jesus. These are statements that he makes about himself, um, and they are only in the book of John. And so we're taking some time to look at those uh, and the uniqueness of John's gospel to to show those to us. And this one this morning uh, is is the big one. I am, the resurrection, and the life. And up to this point, Jesus has performed these signs or miracles as John has uh, put or displayed. And it's not the the exhaustive, you know, list of all of his miracles, but he's attaching these signs to these miracles. And, And while this is not the last I am statement that we'll look at, it is the last and final I am statement that he attaches to a sign. And so some of those signs have been that we've seen already, uh, that he gives sight to a blind man. He heals someone who is sick. He, he, he changes w- water into wine. And he does those things to point to a reality about himself. And this is the final sign that John gives us. And in one sense, it's sort of the, the culmination of all of these. It's the fullness of everything Jesus has come to do. Uh, and it is wrapped up in this statement, I am the resurrection, and the life. And so I'll be pulling, uh, as far as the sermon is concerned, from chapter 11, verses 1, all the way to 44. I'm going to read for us a portion of that, beginning in verse 17 and going to verse 27. So let us give our attention uh, to the reading of God's Word found in the book of John, chapter 11, verse 17. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I I know. I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Let me pray and ask God to teach us his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for our time this morning, and we pray that you would do a miracle, and by miracle that you would soften hardened hearts that we may respond to you as we, as we should, that you would resurrect our dead hearts as we see in this passage, um, to be able to have eyes to see and ears to hear uh, your truth and your words to us. Would you do this for your glory alone, we pray. Amen. Well, I'm a big fan of the, um, I guess it was the HBO series many years ago called Band of Brothers, and uh, if you haven't seen it, it's essentially essentially follows Easy Company uh, during World War II from really beginning to end. This was um, uh, a company that was airborne. Um, they jumped out of planes. This was new, techn- new, new uh, what do you call it, tactical warfare at this time. And, um, and if you've seen it, you know how both well the series is, but also how hard it is to watch. It really gives, I think, one of the best glimpses into what wartime is like certainly for um, what World War II was. And, but in, in even what you get glimpses of, you know that it was worse than that. But there's one particular, there's a lot of good scenes, but there's one particular episode with this scene where Easy Company has made it into uh, Germany, and there's, a, there's a, a, a fraction of them that are going up to this place called the Eagle's Nest. And the Eagle's Nest was Hitler's hideout. This was um, South Germany kind of budding into Austria, uh, already touching the Alps, and there's this beautiful, beautiful house that sits on top of this mountain that overlooks this wonderful view. Um, that's why they call it the Eagle's Nest. And, and, and there's, what I like about this scene is that there's this contrast, and that is there's the contrast of, of what these men are, are experiencing and, and, and feeling. What you're feeling, too, is you're watching this as they hike up this mountain to go to and, and basically clear out this hideout of Hitler's. They don't know who's up there. Uh, they don't know uh, when at any moment, if, if bullets or, or, you know, anything is going to be, be, start raining down on them. And, and so they make their way up there, finally, to find out that there's nobody there, right? And, you know, so the mission is, you know, it's, it's over. We've, we've cleared out. We've secured this place. But something happens while they're up there, and, and, and this is the contrast, this is what changes everything. They get some news, and that news is, is that Hitler is dead, and the war is over. And why I love this scene so much is what happens immediately after this, if you've seen it, is they crack open all the wine that's in there, because there's massive cellars, and the champagne, and they just start celebrating. And it becomes this, what once was this 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 dread, right, The the... the, the, the Wearing of the stress of war and, and, and what, what war does to you has now lifted and transitioned into this place where victory was at hand. The war was over. And now what was a place where we didn't know if we were going to die is now a place where we sit on the balcony and we look out over this amazing view, this amazing creation, and we sip the best wine and champagne. I love it for several reasons. One, that's the Christian hope right there. It's the Christian reality. And we're talking about resurrection this morning, as you can tell throughout the service, that because of the death of Jesus and his resurrection, that's our story. That's our news, right? The war is over. And we are a people who celebrate that. We are a celebratory people. Now, why I also like this story and illustration is it does depict for us as well, What that means in this in-between state is we await Jesus to come back. That is, in World War II, as they received that news that the war was over, was the war over? In one sense, yes. But were there casualties? Oh, yes. Much more casualties to come. It was over in one sense, and in another sense, it wasn't. That's where we are as Christians because of the resurrection as we wait Jesus' final return. Death has been defeated. The war is over. Yet... Cancer is still around. People die. Death is still here. Yet we are this celebratory people. And nothing brings that home more than our text this morning, because this is, this is who Jesus says that he is. He is the resurrection and the life. And in that sense, he has the power of life over death, is what he's telling us in this text. And because that's true, death no longer has power over you. And this is why that scene is so powerful. Because as Christians, what this means is is that we actually transition from from the the before scene of, of soldiers, as it were, hiking up to this point with the stress and the burden of war on their backs to becoming this celebratory people where war is over, but in this case where death no longer reigns over you. That's what Jesus is saying in this text, and that's what we're going to see. Because he is the resurrection and the life. That's what it means. This statement and this sign of raising a dead man is in one sense the fullness of all the signs and and all of the statements up to this point. It is the mission of God to bring life from dead things. And that's what we see in this text. So the three things that are not on your bulletin there, um, because uh, Jesus is the power of life over death, and because that's true, death no longer has power over us. I want us to see that from this text that Jesus is the source of life. Jesus is the one who understands the tragedy of death, and that Jesus is the one who has, power to, has the power to end death, Okay. Let me say those again. Because he is the resurrection and the life, and what that means for us as Christians who believe in him, he is the source of life, he is the one who understands the tragedy of death, and he is the one who has the power to end death. So let's look at those three things in that order. The first one, as the resurrection and life, Jesus is the source of life. So let me zero in here on this statement. We're going to be right here in verses 25 and 26 uh, at first. What does it mean for Jesus to say that I am the resurrection and the life? It it means that there is no life apart from Jesus because he is life. Let me say that again. It it means that there is no life apart from Jesus because Jesus is life. That's what the text says. That's what he means when he says this. This is what he means when he says that I am the 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 resurrection and the life. What we see in this statement and in this chapter is that resurrection is not just something Jesus will do for you, nor is it something that he offers. Resurrection is who he is. I am the resurrection and the life. Therefore, there is no life outside of him. And we see this as we've seen this before, that there is both a spiritual reality to this and the sign that he attaches to to it, which is raising this man from the dead that we'll look at in a second, but there's also a physical reality to this too. First, the spiritual reality of what he means in this statement when he says that I am the resurrection and the life is to say that, that, that in one sense, spiritually, we are already dead. That We are already dead. For what needs resurrection, friends, <laughs> not life, what needs resurrection is that which is already dead. And this is really the hurdle uh, for us this morning. Jesus' statement is actually confusing because what it suggests is that it makes us think that life is not no longer in us now. Right? But I'm, I'm alive, aren't I? But for him to say that I am the resurrection and the life, right, is to assume that there's something dead that needs to be brought to life. And so before we move forward, I do want to say, yes, you are alive, right? Facebook, the meta-universe has not taken over yet at this point. You are alive. But, but again, the sign pointing to the spiritual reality. The spiritual reality, for, for, as Scripture testifies to, is that there is something dead here. Our hearts are dead. And he is saying that, that unless uh, resurrection power comes to your heart, you, you aren't alive. And you aren't alive in the sense that God has intended for you to be alive. He is saying that everyone lives physically, yes, but not everyone is alive spiritually. And he's been saying that in various ways at this point. Here's the most direct way. We eat But it is not the food that leads to life. We drink, but nothing ever satisfies. We must be born again. These are the statements that Jesus has made up to this point. Therefore, what Jesus will do for Lazarus, as as we see here, is, is first and foremost a sign of a physical reality that points to a spiritual reality to those who believe of Jesus resurrecting our dead hearts as the source of life that he is, that we might believe and have life and have it abundantly, as we saw last week. We've talked about this part more in our series than any other, the spiritual significance that all these signs point to. What we haven't talked much about is the physical reality as well, and especially with resurrection. Jesus says in verse 25, Then whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. There is a physical death coming here for everyone. Jesus is acknowledging that. Though he die, yet shall he live. But for those who are, as we say, united to Christ, which is what faith in Christ does, it unites you to him, life never ends. That's what he is saying. Deal with him. Life never ends, or death never really comes for those united to him. And this is a distinctively Christian idea. And as we should with all distinctively Christian ideas, let's go to the confession. Let's look and see what it has to say. Question number 37 of the Shorter Catechism. What benefits do believers receive from Christ at death? That's what the scriptures teach. One, that the souls of believers are at their death made perfect in holiness and do immediately pass into glory. Let me say that again. Immediately pass in to glory. But it it doesn't stop there. And their bodies, being still united to Christ, do rest in their graves till the resurrection. What Jesus is saying is that death, for for those united to him, that death, though you die, is not permanent death, which means it's not death. You move immediately, spiritually, immediately into his presence, where you actually experience life more than you are experiencing it right now. But then, when he returns and raises everybody from the grave, you will actually have a physical body. This is crazy. This is crazy, but this is what the text says. It's almost like reading this this shorter catechism here, right, and understanding what happens at death and how it doesn't have its permanent effect over us, and then being united to Christ that he will raise our bodies. Let's close in prayer right here. This is awesome. When Jesus returns and the new heavens and the earth come about, we won't be experiencing that as a spirit. This is what is distinctively Christian. We will be experiencing that in physical bodies as our Lord is in a physical body in this very, this very moment. And why? Because I am the resurrection and the life, as Jesus says. See, there's a spiritual reality to that that, we, that it points to in our hearts that need to be resurrected. But there is a physical reality to that. That is the significance of the sign as he is about to raise a dead person from the grave. All this because Jesus is the source of all life the first point. He's the source of all life. Apart from him, there is no life, and Jesus offers by virtue of our union with him, as we just read, both in this life and when we die, and there's no better word for this, a force field around you that death simply can't touch. I don't know if you saw the new Dune movie that was just released. I I, I didn't know really anything about it. I had seen the older version in 1984 and probably had nightmares of just the grotesque villain in, in that one, but it didn't stop me from, from actually liking this one. The special effects and the imagination in the movie uh, is worth the watch, age-appropriate, of course, if you're, if you're age-appropriate, uh, but one of the places this shows up the most and that grabbed my attention uh, was the, the, the technology and the changes of what it looks like for a soldier to go to war, and in the new one, of course, in the old one, too, they do this, but they have the ability to activate this force field that goes around them. That's pretty cool, and for you know, if you've seen the older one, you notice we didn't have the, the the graphic technology to make that really work. I think there's just a bunch of squares walking around. That was about as all, all that the computer um, you know effects could do. But in this one, you get to see what it is supposed to look like. That they can activate this force field, and as they go into battle, and as bullets are, are shot at them, they're actually they actually stop, right? And it's everything you wanted as a kid when you thought about uh, a plane out in the backyard and, and having a force field that you could imagine, you know, that nothing could penetrate that, nothing could, could get you, uh, nothing could touch you. You're invincible. Of course, the problem, at least for Dune, is that the force fields can only hold off a bullet for so long. It's not a permanent force field, which actually makes for some of the most best, intense and Suspenseful scenes in the movie, but I'll let you go check that out for yourself. Doing aside, let's make the connection. What Jesus is saying is that He is, right, as the life and the resurrection, He is that force field that by virtue of our union with Him, death can never touch you. This is why you, though you die, yet shall He live. Let that sink in. Before we move on, here's what this means. To those in this room who have faith in Christ, you are an eternal being. You will live forever. That's what Jesus is saying. You will live forever. And why? Because he is the source of all life. He doesn't just offer resurrection. He is the resurrection. Apart from Jesus, there is no life because he is the power of life over death, and death no longer has power over you. The war's over. That's what he's saying in that statement. That is what he is saying. This is the first point I labor here more than any other because it just needed it. We'll just leave it at that. Second, let's go to the second point, though, as we look, and look at the story. We're going to zoom out a little bit, the story, and we see it in the second point that as the resurrection and the life, he's not only the source of life, but Jesus is actually the one who understands the tragedy of death. And I, and I want this to be here uh, in this sermon because in this story, we see some very unique things in the way that Jesus responds to death. That I think we need to slow down and and, and unpack. So pulling back from the story, uh, from verses 25 to 26 that we just looked at, beginning in chapter 11. Let me just review this because we didn't read this. Uh, Jesus has remember last chapter uh, saying that he was the good shepherd and then uh, talking about how nobody takes his life from him. He lays it down on his own authority that him and the father are one. Well, what happened at the end of that? We didn't read it, but I, I mentioned it. Uh, the Jews who were angry there with him began to pick up stones to throw and kill, uh, kill him. So they chased him out of that area near Jerusalem. So they have left about a day's journey. And now he's getting word that his friend is sick. And this is going to send him back to where he came. What's interesting that John tells us is that he, he gets this word, but he doesn't move immediately back to go help Lazarus. He actually stays two days, okay? This is you uh, at home getting a report that your mom is, 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 is about to die and you buy a plane ticket for like the Florida coast and then come back and check that out later. I mean, it's kind of what this feels like. Jesus is given this news and then he just hangs out for two days. And that's, that's where we get uh, into verse um, uh, 16, I think is where it is. Oh, no, not 16, but when he approaches Martha, and Martha says to him, if you were here, if you were here, my brother wouldn't have died. But as they're, they're, they're figuring out what they're going to do, and Jesus is saying, we're going to go back. Verse 16, Thomas even says, let us also go that we may die with him. <laughs> They know they're going to their death here, which I find that interesting. But he goes and he deals with Martha. For, or Martha goes out to him, and she, you can see that in her, her response. And it's, and it's hard to tell if there's criticism here or if she's just stating a fact. But the point remains, I know that if you were here, he would not have died. I've seen you do things like this. And we're going to enter this, this space later, but this is the whole when tragedy and suffering and death fall on your lap, which it has touched all of us in some way, this is the question of why. Where are you, God, in the midst of this? Why are you not here? Why did you let this happen? That's where Martha is. And Mary says the exact same thing later on. And there's two things that, I, that stand out about this that I want us to look at in this, this second point. One is how Jesus was deeply moved, that we read, in verses 33 and 38, and two, that Jesus wept. First, the word used here in 33 and 38 for deeply moved, when it's used outside the Bible, means this the snorting of horses. And I'm not going to demonstrate that for you this morning. You can thank Jesus for that. But it means the snorting of horses, and applied to humans, it means anger. It means anger. B.B. Warfield perhaps says it best, saying what John tells us in point of fact is that Jesus approached the grave of Lazarus in a state not of uncontrollable grief, but of inexpressible anger. And this happens twice. Once when Jesus saw Mary weeping and the Jews with her weeping, and then again as he approached the tomb, he got physically angry, such as a horse snorting. Second, though, John tells us that Jesus wept in this story. That as they, again, go back to Martha and Mary to tend to Lazarus, we're told that Jesus weeps with them. The only other place that we read of Jesus weeping is in Luke 19.41 when Jesus, looking over Jerusalem, wept because of what had become of her. Jesus weeping here teaches us something, though, about Jesus, but it also about the right response to death and tragedy. And as one, I, I, I and I love this. Jesus doesn't offer an explanation for the suffering of Mary and Martha and those that are experiencing the loss of their friend or brother. He doesn't offer an explanation. He doesn't try to move them beyond the right response of weeping over the loss of their brother. Instead, he enters their pain and he weeps with them. Don't miss that. Don't miss that. It is so dignifying, and it's dignifying because Jesus knows what he's about to do. He knows What he's uh, literally, he is literally about to bring this dead person back to life. If there was ever a moment to move someone beyond their tears to the truth of reality that Christ offers, it's Jesus in this moment. Mary and Martha, pull yourselves together. Where's your faith? But he doesn't say that, he doesn't shame them. He weeps with them, friends. That's your Savior. This is not just a powerful description of what Jesus is doing, but a powerful prescription for us as his followers. Too often we are quick to move towards someone grieving with a word that we hope will relieve their suffering and remind them of the hope that things will get better. Instead, what we should be doing is entering that space with them, sharing in their sufferings, and weeping with them. And why? It's not because we don't have a hope that is greater than death. It's actually because we do. It's actually because we do. And this gets to the second point here and this point of of Jesus' anger. He weeps, but he is physically angry. His anger is a testimony, what? To the wrongness of death. It is to see death as a violent tyranny, as Calvin writes. Some commentaries argue that Jesus is angry because no one believes him uh, and the words that he's been saying, and so he he has to move to, to raise Lazarus because... To do this would only allow them to believe in his words at this point. That makes no sense with the rest of the narrative. No, what Jesus is angry at is death itself, friends. And this too is prescriptive. Death should anger you. It is a tragedy. It is the unwelcomed invader into God's good creation brought on by our own sin and rebellion. Let's state that first. We are the blame here. But as Christians, when we give up our stories, as it were, and enter God's story of redemption to learn that death is not normal, nor is it natural, we begin to see what? It's wrongness. The very fact that resurrection is a phrase should tell us how terrible it really is, that death is anything but natural once we see things from the Bible's perspective. As a pastor, I do funerals, I do a lot of funerals, and friends, they never become familiar they never get comfortable. They never seem normal. And there are people here who have probably done more funerals than I have. As a matter of fact, I know there are. And I would argue, or I would guess, if I asked you, did you get to the point where you, you were laying this body in the ground and you thought, man, this is, this is, yeah, this is all right. I doubt it. And it doesn't get normal because I don't believe in resurrection. It doesn't get normal because I do believe in resurrection. Because what resurrection tells me is that death is not the way things are supposed to be. And that's what it tells us this morning as well. We are image of God, friends. That's how you were created. And as image of God, death has no place among us. And there's no better place that that makes this clear than Ecclesiastes 3.11, which says that he has made everything beautiful in its time. What a wonderful statement. It's true. Also, right after, he has put eternity into man's heart. He has put eternity into man's heart. What that means is that one of the reasons a funeral will always have that there is something incredibly wrong about this feel to it is you have eternity in your heart. If you have eternity in your heart, why are you being buried in a casket and lifeless? But we tell ourselves death is natural. Um, It's a normal part of life in order to, to ease the suffering and I would just say, no, thank you. No, thank you. Death is actually incompatible with the image you bear, and because that's true, it should make you angry. This is the anger that Jesus is showing us here of that, the mar of his creation. It's not anger towards God for allowing this or even the anger that creeps in when one, uh, the one, one that you love is taken from you, but but, but anger at the invasion of death upon God's good creation. And we get to see that here in this text. Very few places do we see that. It is an invasion that Jesus, though, is about to put an end to for good. See, Jesus understands the tragedy of death here, and this is the, this is the point of the second point, even as he's about to destroy it. And I think before we leave here, do we see that as his followers? Do we, do we recognize that? The tragedy of this, we know it instinctively in one sense, but we recognize that, it, that, that what, what it is is our anger there um, matching that in one sense of Jesus. Not that it needs to match it, but just it, does that connect with us? It is the one who is the power of life over death that weeps and is angry. And though death has no power over us because of our union with Christ, as we've been saying, the more we grow and the more we understand what it means for Jesus to be the resurrection in life, the more we will understand the tragedy, the tragedy, friends, of death and what sin has done as well. And actually, the bigger that the cross actually gets for us, and this gets to our last point. Because it's not an anger without hope, friends. It is not an anger without hope. It is an anger that sets the cross in front of us and shows us the proper answer and response to this tragedy. And this is the last point because of the resurrection. Because He is the resurrection in the life. Jesus is the one who has the power to end death. The climax of the narrative uh, in, in, in John 11 is the raising of Lazarus from the dead. What Jesus said in verse 25, He attaches to this sign of resurrecting Lazarus. Jesus is showing us then that he has power over death. And two things to note here. One, Jesus bathes the final sign in prayer, as you see there in verses 41 to 42. And we didn't read that, but this prayer is interesting in that John records Jesus saying why he said this out loud. It's a prayer that he, he, he says, I'm saying this so that those standing around will hear this and believe. What does this mean? Is Jesus gaslighting here? I thought we were supposed to go in a closet, he said, and pray in private so that no one would see you. No, of course, Jesus is not trying to impress. What he's doing is he's making sure that those who are about to witness a dead man come out of the tomb and back to life, that it is only something done out of accordance with the will of God the Father. In other words, he has set, Jesus, as he has said, does nothing by himself but only what the Father has sent him to do. It is a statement of constant communion between them, between the Godhead between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit Bruce Milne again puts it this way in the raising of Lazarus the final or the full implications of the union of the Son and the Father and the mission of God to the world become apparent so absolute is the Son's commitment to glorifying, to the glorifying of the Father in that, st- in that mission, that there is nothing which the Father will refuse him. Accordingly, the Son is invested with all authority in heaven and earth. Nothing is withheld from him, not even the power of life and death. In other words, what Jesus does in this prayer before he raises Lazarus is he shows why and how this will happen. Because the Father and I are one. What I do, the Father wills. What I ask for, the Father gives me, because we are one. Right? It is a Trinitarian mission to bring life from what is dead. It's complicated. It's wordy. I understand that. With these words of prayer, and as a or with these words of prayer, though, as we move forward into this this story, and as a As as Jesus approaches this tomb, and as Calvin again writes, as a champion who prepares for conflict, Jesus cries out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And this is what happens. He comes out as the sheep hear uh, the voice of the good shepherd uh, and are called by name. Lazarus comes to his shepherd with this sign. Jesus is showing us that he has power over death. But one thing that's greater than having power over death is having the power to defeat death once and for all, which is what the resurrection of Lazarus points to. As stated earlier, we see in Jesus' prayer the union of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Right? In the resurrection of Lazarus, we also see their mission in, in, in the end as well. This is the point that I was making earlier. The mission of God right, wrapped up in this sign is that he would what? bring life out of what's dead. And we see that in, in this sign, which foresa- foreshadows the cross. It will take more, as we know, than the command of God to call forth Lazarus to defeat this enemy. It will take the power of Jesus' own resurrection over death on our behalf. This is what the great story of David and Goliath was always pointing to. If you're familiar with, with the story, most people are, of, of young David going out into the field, uh, the battlefield with a sling, right, and some stones and, and, and toppling the giant Goliath, the Philistine, right? And just to be clear, that's not a story about like, you know, with faith, like God will help you defeat the giants in your life. That's not what that text is about. What that story is saying is that just like David, Jesus, right, he is our representative that goes into this battlefield to fight a battle that we can't fight, to defeat an enemy that we can't defeat, For David and and, and Israel, it was this giant, this Philistine, one for one. Whoever dies, the others others become slaves of those people. What David does affects everybody. What Jesus does affects everybody. But it's so much more clear. You, You have no power over death. I have no power over death. I need somebody else to go fight that battle for me. This is why what's better than having power over death is actually having the power and ability to defeat death. This is what it means, again, to say that I am the resurrection and the life. Listen again to Paul's victory language in 1 Corinthians 15. Death has swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us what? The victory— through our Lord Jesus Christ. What's greater than having power over death is having the power to defeat death. And friends, that's what Jesus does for you. It's what he does for me, for those who believe in him. It's not just, hey, I will, I can uh, give you new life. I am new life. And if you are connected to me, if you are united to me by faith, you too will have this as well. Death no longer reigns over you. Your enemy death has been conquered. The war is over. This is what we've seen. That Jesus is the source of life because, of the, because he has the resurrection and the life. He's the one who understands the tragedy and wrongness of death. He is the one who has power to end death. And because of these things are true, death no longer has power over us. I just want to leave with one thing about this because there's, there's a lot of directions to go with this. How, what does this mean for us practically? Um, how do I appropriate this in my life? And we've touched on a few of those things. I, I want to leave you with, with this, a, a note about what's hidden versus what's not hidden. Because I think this is where this connects and, and, and where there's actually conflict with us about the resurrection life that Jesus offers, right, and the reality of sin and suffering and, and the pain of death that I experience here in this world. And I want to draw our attention as we end here to, to what's, what's hidden and what's not. In this story, as I mentioned earlier, right, Jesus waits two days before he goes. And he gets gets there. And Martha and Mary do what? Where have you been? If you were here, this wouldn't have happened. And as I said to you earlier, I imagine that you've been in that, that place. I imagine that you have have asked about God's timing, if you will, for the things that have happened in your life. And and The reality for us is that God's timing is not our timing. And those are the things that are hidden from us. We can read in this narrative that Jesus is aware of his delay. He he goes when he he plans to go. And he gets there when he plans to get there. But it doesn't satisfy Mary and Martha, as I'm sure it doesn't satisfy you, for me to tell you in the midst of your pain and suffering, look, God has a plan for this. There's a moment for that. But there's a time when I, I, I'm not ready to hear those things. The purposes behind his timing are often hidden from us. Two years ago, this December 27th, we did a funeral for a nine-year-old who belonged to some dear friends of ours. We loved her. This past August, as some of you know, we buried her mother from cancer. It's A year and a half. Why? Where were you, Jesus? And I know that you all have similar stories of tragedy, so I even hesitate to to bring this up, but you have similar stories of tragedy and loss that I can't imagine. But at some point it begs the question, why? Why did you let this happen? Why didn't you save that little girl or heal her mother's cancer? And as we accept that those answers are hidden from us, along with the purposes of God's timing, like Martha and Mary in the face of their dying brother, How do you respond when Jesus' timing isn't your timing? Because there's another side to that question, right? Here in John, based on what we see in this text, first there's there's how do you respond when Jesus' timing isn't your timing, but then there's this. How do you respond when Jesus finally does answer you? And that's your hope this morning, Christian. Jesus is going to answer you. In other words, that nine-year-old is going to come up out of the grave one day. What is going to be my response when I see that? All of this, like trusting the sovereignty of God topic, has two sides of it. That will happen one day. But those things are hidden from us. And, 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 and that, is, that, that is where I spend most of my time and where I want to leave you is, I don't want you to, to spend your time with what is hidden from you. We have to trust in God's timing. We have to trust in his sovereignty, that the things that he does and the way that he does them are often hidden from us. What is not hidden from you this morning? is where I want you to gaze and what's not hidden from you this morning is the cross that is what is in full view the cross is what tells us and reminds us that in our suffering and in our loss and the pain of waiting and the confusion of not having answers it can't be it can't be because God doesn't love me it can't be because he isn't there It can't be because God is not in control. Look at the table. The cross, what is not hidden from you this morning, is everything that tells you that he is in control, friends. That he is not hidden from you. That he is not not present from you. That he does, in fact, love you. That is what is not hidden from us. May what's hidden from you now never, overshadow what is not hidden from us in God's love, the cross, as people for whom death, friends, no longer has any power over. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your words to us. We pray that those words would be the words that sink deep into our hearts, the words of, I am the resurrection and the life, though ye die, yet shall you live. And as we wrestle with what that means, and, and there's so much about that that we don't know what it means, and as we deal with the pain and suffering that is still evident in this world, that you are coming back to uh, completely remove from the face of this earth. Would we stand and wherever we find ourselves, Right, glue to what you have not hid from us, and that is your, your final answer over all these things, your final answer to us, your final answer to death, which is your cross, your death and resurrection, which has defeated death, which has given us new life, and which promises for you to be with us for eternity. You do these things for your glory alone, we pray. Amen.